Russia is supposed to have removed all the chemical weapons from Syria. Let's think about the possible reasons for Russia's failure. It could be that Russia is knowingly allowing chemical weapons to remain in Syria. It could be that Russia has been incompetent in its efforts to remove the chemical weapons. Or it could be that the Assad regime is playing the Russians for fools. Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. It's time for our weekly visit with Bill Crystal. Yes, the crystal clear edition of the Daily Standard Podcast. And it's brought to you by SaneBox.com. If your email is buried under an avalanche of unanswered messages, you can get to Inbox Zero. You can, and I know, because I've done it with SaneBox.com. You can try it for free for two weeks and get a $25 credit. I'll tell you how later in the podcast. First, it has been such a jam-packed news week. You almost don't know where to start. I mean, the Neil Gorsuch filibuster story normally would be the front page. It's been pushed back to the bomber pages, you know, B-17, by the decision of Donald Trump to let down his alt-right friends and go pure neocon. So congratulations. I don't know how you did it. If you had photos of him or something, I don't know what you did. No, thanks. The use of force by an American president is a big deal. The first use of force by a president in his term is uh, even maybe slightly bigger deal. People are really looking at it, obviously, trying to say, see, was it the right decision? Was it done well? And what does it portend for the future? But it is interesting to me that the guy who so often said so many negative things about any kind of intervention, who said to President Obama in 2013, don't act now, is the guy who's acting. Uh, What does that tell us about what does that tell you about Donald Trump? I think he was mugged by reality. You know, it's easy to dislike these wars that are inconclusive. And he used to like saying, we haven't won a war in ages. And why are we getting involved in all these other countries? When you're really the president of the United States and your advisors really explain to you the implications of not acting, that those implications can be as dire as acting. And that if you let a dictator who has pledged to the U.S. and to the world that he's getting rid of his chemical weapons, use them with impunity, that the kind of credibility effects that has on the on, on the U.S., the effects it has in the region, the implications for Russia and Iran, I think it tells me that he's being more serious about being president than perhaps one would have thought just watching him tweet and watching some of the other things he said and done. We'll see if he carries this through. I don't think it means a fundamental reorientation necessarily in the way he thinks about the world. But there just is something about being president and having to live with the consequences of your decisions or your inaction that I think focuses the mind in a way being a candidate doesn't, being president-elect doesn't, and really being president until there's a crisis doesn't. I mean, think of George W. Bush. Right. We think of him so much as a war president, obviously, after 9-11. But, you know, until 9-11, A, it wasn't clear what his foreign policy doctrine was going to be. He had campaigned on being more humble in foreign policy. And B, he seemed sort of indecisive and he was doing education policy with Ted Kennedy and getting his tax cut through compassionate conservatism. So the crisis can, can change a, a crisis and the response to a crisis can change a presidency. What doesn't change is partisanship and particularly right. the sort that Donald Trump engenders. I mean, just people who don't like Donald Trump really don't like Donald Trump. And I have heard some of the dumbest arguments ever from liberals trying to make their way around why they should hate Trump. And the one that jumped out at me was, how are people cheering this madman? He saw some pictures and it made him act. Well, what if he turns, you know, what if he turns on the wrong show next time? And next thing you know, we're bombing, you know, Burkina Faso or something. I mean, I would distinguish, though, liberals who are, you know, and people on Twitter and media types Mm -hmm. from actual 
Democratic elected officials. They can be plenty irresponsible and annoying if you're a conservative or a Republican as well. But the truth is most of them have supported or at least expressed kind of cautious support for what uh, President Trump did and haven't simply mocked him. And I, I'm, yeah, I'm very tired of the kind of, well, he watched it on TV. And is that a way to make decisions? No, it's not a way to make decisions. Maybe he's a little too influenced by the emotional side of it. A lot of presidents have been influenced by a lot of emotional mm-hmm. sides, though, of watching horrors happen. I don't, I don't think worse of him for being moved by the sight of these babies and children uh, gassed to death by Assad. Now, that doesn't mean that you do one airstrike and everything's fine and you've sort of corrected the moral calculus and now you just go back to business as usual. So that's right. It, there's so many questions now hanging over the Trump presidency. But there are questions about how he's going to move forward as president, I would say, more than questions of, gee, can this guy even fulfill the basic right. kind of duties? Uh, and does he have the basic qualifications of a president? Right. I think in that, that this was very important for that reason. I think first major crisis, first major international challenge, we could debate, I suppose, most people I think agree that what he did was reasonable. We'll see what happens. But I think almost as important as the way it happened. You know, that he just when when was Tuesday morning, I guess right. was the news of the of the uh, gas attack. And he, it seems from the outside, and I'm sure we'll learn more later that there were things that maybe got went wrong at all, but it mm-hmm. certainly seemed from the outside to be a pretty smoothly run and well executed operation. It didn't leak out ahead of time. There were National Security Council meetings. Obviously, the military did its preparations. There were diplomatic consultations. It seems like Mattis and Tillerson uh, and McMaster, you know, coordinated things quite well. So I just think there, too, it had been such – the White House had been such a zoo, seemed so chaotic that at least on this fundamentally – on this important matter, one had the sense, hey, you know what? It's being pulled together. For me, H.R. McMaster is the real story of this last three or four days, the National Security Advisor. He's the guy who obviously pulled it together, jumped to his credit, signed off on the plan McMaster gave him basically, and let McMaster kind of run the show without foolish interference. But I think we've discussed this before. The replacement of Flynn by McMaster, about 27 days into this administration, which is really a Flynn story. None of us focused on McMaster much. But that could turn out to be really an important moment. It's like replacing Bob Euchre with Big Poppy. I mean, it is a huge, huge step up. But um, a couple of things about the the storyline that you laid out. The pragmatic one is, well, of course they had the plan ready. It was a plan they had ready in 2013. Barack Obama had the weapons the plan, the motivation, the horrifying gas attack. He just, Donald Trump had one thing that Barack Obama didn't have. And before anyone's inserts any rude answer to that, he had the will. He had the will right. to act, which goes back to the schizophrenia of make America great again. I have a lot of MAGA members in my family down south, people who supported Trump. And they do. They are. They feel like they got sold a bill of goods about Iraq. Right. They they do want some humble that, that humble foreign policy message you know, resonate with them. But at the same time, they have an image of America. America is not the kind of country that. And there's and it, it, it makes there, you can't ascribe a thought out worldview or policy to it. It's just that kind of basic what is right and what is wrong. And it is wrong for America who can do something at very little cost to keep kids from getting gassed to death. And what kind of country does that? And Barack Obama lost that. And it was only the hyper partisanship of the media that you know bolstered that and kept him from sagging in the esteem of more Americans. And, and now, today, you see that gulf. 
Yeah, no, I very much agree with that in a kind of common moral sense, you might say, mm-hmm. that Americans have, uh, whether they, you know, approve of the Iraq war or not. I would also say kind of a common strategic sense, common sense mm-hmm. strategic view that, you know what, it doesn't hurt to be look like a tough guy. It doesn't look to, like a guy, if someone does something really bad, you punch him in the nose. Right. Now, punching someone in the nose once, to extend the metaphor, doesn't solve the problem if the guy gets up and, you know, goes out and gets a submachine gun or something. So you've got to really be ready to follow up. But I was—I had lunch with an ambassador, this a U.S. ambassador, former ambassador to an Asian country this week, in the middle of the discussions of whether Trump was going to do something in Syria, and he had been talking a lot with the people from the country to which he was ambassador and other diplomats. He knows that world pretty well, and he said it was amazing how much they're not experts on Syria. These are people from thousands of miles away, obviously. How much they wanted? They're friends of the U.S. though, and they wanted Trump to do something. Right. They thought we paid a huge price for the red line, not enforcing the red line around the world. These are people more concerned about China than about Syria sure. or about Russia or, or Iran. But nonetheless, they thought, you know what? And the, obviously, the premier of China was there at Mar-a-Lago, and, and that's I, I admire Trump for that. Though he sort of turns to the guy, okay. and calmly says at the end of the dinner, and suddenly we've launched missiles here in Syria, <laughs> and you've got to think that helps a little. Put more pre- helps put a little more pressure on the Chinese to worry about North Korea. And geez, if he did this, maybe he'd do this in North. Maybe we could lean a little more on the North Koreans. So that part, I think, of of this the strategic use of force, the willingness to use force, I do think Trump gets that. I think the American people get that. Now, again, it's just like with everything else. It, it, if, if it goes awry, if it doesn't uh, achieve its effect, if he doesn't follow up in intelligent ways, it can all just be a you know footnote in history. But it could be a moment. It could be a moment where we he becomes you know, a seriously effective president. Wouldn't you love to have been in that dinner in yes. here? Uh, by the way, we just bombed Syria. Can you pass the bacon? You know, just, it was just, that was, that was great. You mentioned about the price that we paid because President Obama set a red line, refused to follow the red line, then him humiliated himself even more by announcing, oh, absolutely, I could enforce the red line. I've made a decision not to enforce the red line. I mean, it's, it was, it couldn't have been worse. But, you know, who paid? The people in Crimea who yeah. didn't want to be part of Russia, and I know that's a some did, but whatever. You know, but the, those people paid. The people in eastern Ukraine paid. The people who are worried about sh- free shipping lanes in South China. I mean, everybody else right. paid, which means everybody else won. So I want to roll through some winners and losers from this and week. And the Syrian people paid above it, all. But on that, I think it, just on your point, I just to get back to that ambassador, I have a lot of truth. He actually said he said he talked to people very high up, including Chinese officials, and who basically didn't disguise the fact that once Obama didn't enforce the red line, they figured, you know what, we can do some things here in sure. the South China Sea, those artificial islands. And, mm-hmm. you know, we shouldn't probably, you know, rub their nose in it. So we no. shouldn't do it dramatically at all at once, but sort of step sure. by step, just mm-hmm. gradually, they'll wag fingers at us, they'll express disapproval. But you know what, he's just not going right. to really ever do anything D- about it. Does Iran humiliate American naval personnel in the Gulf if Syria had you know, if the red line had been enforced and Syria had paid a price, do they? Well, no, and I'd even make it stronger. The re- one reason President Obama didn't enforce the red line was he so desperately wanted an Iranian nuclear deal mm-hmm. that he didn't want to have a fight with right. an Iranian okay, client. Okay, so you're getting a little head, Bill. You're getting to the part of the podcast I've been looking forward to sitting down and asking you about the winners and losers from this amazing week. And before we get to your answers, I want to throw out a guaranteed winner, everybody who signs up for SaneBox.com. If you're like me and you had long ago given up on the idea of ever taking control of your email. You're just going to have this big like mountain of 59,427 whatever messages and you're never going to get through them all and you're going to have to fight through junk and spam to get to the emails you need for work or for your personal life or from family. 
Don't give up. I had given up, and then someone threw me the SaneBox lifeline and brought sanity to my email. SaneBox.com is the secret to reaching inbox zero and taking back email sanity. SaneBox sorts through your email and moves all the trivial stuff into a different folder. So the only messages you see when you look in your inbox are the ones you actually want. Then aside from getting rid of the junk so you can focus on the messages that matter, there's a great feature called the black hole. Someone sends you an email, you know you never want to open an email from that source. You just drag it to the black hole and poof, they're never heard from again. If Hillary Clinton had had this, she might be president of the United States today. No, seriously, SaneBox.com is fantastic. And I've got a great deal for you because you listen to the podcast. Go to SaneBox.com slash Weekly Standard. Not only can you try SaneBox for two weeks, but if you sign up for it, you get an additional $25 credit. And you know what? You don't even give your credit card information unless you decide to buy. So there's no risk. Check it out today. Let me know if you love the black hole and reaching inbox zero as much as I do. That's SaneBox.com. S-A-N-E-B-O-X. SaneBox.com slash Weekly Standard. Okay, Bill Crystal, your winners and losers for this week. First winners, the town in Syria that was going to get chlorine attacks. Right. That's not going to now. Right. That's the first. I mean, right. seriously, the top of the one winner. The big loser, I don't know that Assad per se is a big loser because this really was a war on the act of chemical weapons, no, nothing strategic. You could argue to be purely cynical about the politics. The big loser this week is Barack Obama. This is a week where from top to bottom, Barack Obama's legacy was just sh- you know, the, the, the ugly underbelly of it. You mentioned the Iran deal, the desperate need to keep that Iran deal, part of which meant that you had to pretend that Syria didn't have chemical weapons. We now can conclude, and a lot of smart people are saying publicly, of course the Obama administration knew that there were chemical weapons there, because they knew in 2013 where to attack. And right. they knew they were there now, which means that these holdovers in the defense you know, administration, who are almost all Obama people, all knew that there were chemical weapons there. Our president misled, misdirected, sent Susan Rice out. Boy, this is getting to be a familiar story. Right. Sent Susan Rice out to lie. Two weeks ago, oh, yeah, well, we so got all those week, weapons. This week I was on TV with a former Obama administration official who was pretty careful to say, look, we got rid of most of them. We knew they got rid of most of them. We were always worried that some they had held back. Mm. They didn't express those worries quite as much, <laughs> no, I noticed. they didn't. In 2016. No, I think President Obama, look, I've, I think this is just reality coming mm-hmm. to bear, though. It's not just this isn't because Trump acted. It's because of what Assad did, obviously, mm-hmm. primarily, and people thinking through the implications of it. Obama was so lucky as president. His, the weakness of his first term, which was mostly the latter part of the first term where he withdrew from, didn't uh, leave troops in Iraq, and, and, and after surging right. in Afghanistan, got out quickly. We didn't pay much of a price for that in 2012. Benghazi was the closest, but that was a kind of one-off and such right. a bizarre incident and all that. And he managed to have his people kind of lie about it enough to get him through <laughs> get him through election day. We paid a price for the first term in the second term. We're paying a price for the real weakness of the second term, which was really astonishing with the red line and, and right. the Iran deal and Putin getting away with stuff. We're paying it for, and trying to getting away with the islands. We're pay, we, we are we have been paying a price for that and we are now paying a price for that. Trump has a pretty good chance to reverse some of that. I do think Iran and Russia really looking at what happened must be thinking, whoa, this is right. somewhat different now. You know, they might decide, whoa, we have to intensify some of what we're doing or be more irresponsible because we have still a window to get some stuff done that we want to do. I don't know. You could they could be radicalized by this. But I've got to think there's a real chance to follow up with pressure in both Russia and Iran 
uh, after this act by uh, the president. The other big loser this week, whoever it was at RT who was in charge of handling the manipulation of the Trump file in order to coerce him into doing the bidding of... Uh, so I assume someone's being dragged into Putin's office right, right now and being told, you told me we had this guy! Where is the folder? I thought well, he was not in a hotel in Moscow. What's happening? Now, I, there have I, been I, times when presidents have done things like this and then said, oh, okay, we did that, we got through, it didn't backfire much, let's not do anything for the next six months. Right. I don't think that's Trump's character. Right. But you could imagine that happening, and that would be bad, I think, actually. Because then it would look mm-hmm. like a kind of one-off that wasn't serious. I mean, Granada under Reagan was very minor, of course, mm-hmm. tiny little place. But the reason it had such so much impact with the air traffic controllers, maybe it's a better comparison in his first year, is that it was part of exactly. a doctrine, a build-up, a challenge to the Soviet Union. I mean, that's the key for me. Does Trump pivot from this to a broader mm-hmm. challenge to Putin, to Iran? Uh, at a projection, understanding of the importance of American strength and leadership. And so one of the winners of the week, I think, in that term is our ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, Very much just so. Letting uh, former South Carolina governor Nikki Haley off the leash like that. She clearly was enjoying her role. And, you know, she said after the bombing, she, I don't know if she, she said we're not done, but she implied, right. you know, this don't think this is over. And even if it is over, that's the right thing to say. And so maybe there is a policy initiative you know, growing out of this. I mean, she's been great. I think Rick Masters done a very good job. It seems to have really got control of the national security apparatus right. that was symbolized. One forgets it seemed like this was weeks ago when Bannon was <laughs> removed from the National Security Council. That was Wednesday. I actually right. wonder when that happened while they were planning already, thinking about whether to uh, do the strike. And I think maybe McMaster was able to go to Trump and say, look, we can't have this guy on because it looks then like we're having right. political considerations. So he used it as a, a deftly, it seems pretty deftly maybe as a way to minimize Bannon's mm-hmm. influence. Uh, Tillerson, hard to read, but it seems like he did a competent mm-hmm. job on the diplomatic side. Uh, Mattis obviously knows how to get the Defense Department organized for these strikes. They mostly, as you say, mm-hmm. modified what seems to be have been a, something they could have done in 2013 or were thinking of doing in 2013. So they have a lot of plants on the shelf in the Defense Department, which is a good thing, <laughs> which is a good thing. And, you know, I, I, so I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful this is a something of a turning point. A lot of tough challenges, though, and a lot to, to keep right. on doing. But I have struck just even in the public debate, too. Um, people have sort of snapped out of it. I mean, with Obama, of course, people like us thought it was a very disastrous policy. But then Trump becomes the Republican, so suddenly we have a Fortress America Republican against a right. Obama, you know, Obama Secretary of State. There's no one speaking for kind of people who want American strength and leadership. I've just noticed in the last 48 hours, op-eds, stuff appearing, right. suddenly saying, well, you know what, if you're doing that, Mr. President, let's also think about sure. this with respect to Iran and this with respect to Russia. I do feel like people in the U.S. who want to make the case for American leadership now think, well, there's an opportunity here. And so let's uh, wrap up the podcast with some more talk on some other topics about winners and losers. And you mentioned Steve Bannon, not a good day having to have your business card reprinted. And uh, you uh, last week broke some news about how Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump had been behind the ouster of the assistant deputy, the the, the assistant chief of staff, Katie Walsh. Uh, The public reporting has been that they were also behind helping move Bannon out. Are your friends in, near the administration telling you that they're seeing a new Jared Kushner era and will we all be Northeast Republicans now? Or Democrats. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, but now we're just using synonyms. Yeah, right? good point, good point. I mean, he seems very powerful and the week began with him being mocked for his little visit to Iraq and the way right. he looked in that. But um, he does seem to have his father-in-law's confidence and he's a reasonably intelligent guy So uh, and wants to be more mainstream. Now, that's going to make him more liberal and moderate on a lot of domestic yeah. issues, which may be unfortunate. But I mean, I wouldn't 
assume that that's all done, that he's now in charge. I think Trump likes having a whole bunch mm -hmm. of uh, different uh, influences. But I do think the coalition maybe of Gary Cohn as the economic director, policy director, and Kushner, uh, maybe they're first among equals now in the White House. Uh, and then the other, the, I'm, I'm going to set Judge Gorsuch aside. He was already a winner. He won. Correct. My wife was just, she was, she was economy in the early, it's just not fair. He's so smart and he's so good looking. This is right. just ridiculous. Okay, great. So now my wife has a crush on our next SCOTUS. I think the winner is Mitch McConnell and I think the loser is Chuck Schumer, who really looks like a passenger as opposed to a leader in the Democratic Party. Well, I think let's take each of those. I think McConnell still hasn't gotten enough credit for what exactly. he did. Yes. Trump gets credit for the nomination, as he should. Gorsuch gets credit for being a terrific witness and charming your wife, as he should. <laughs> Why was the seat open? I mean, let's just not forget this. McConnell held it open for almost a year uh, under a lot of pressure, including pressure from his own. He doesn't get to personally do that. He had to hold the Republicans. Exactly. And it's not like Susan Collins and some of the moderate Republicans and some of them who were on the ballot in 2016 thought this was going to be easy. It was stressful to make that case. He did it. He was tough. The Democrats, I think, probably could have taken more advantage of it, but they mm -hmm. didn't. Some One senator I talked to this week thought McConnell may have actually won the election for Trump, too, because yeah. holding the seat open made the Supreme Court more front and center in voters' minds. And that is an issue, all things equal, helps that helps conservatives. Voters generally aren't crazy about the courts making policy too Well, much. let me interrupt right there, because that's, once again, a community I know something about as a graduate of Oral Roberts University, people who you'd think would reject a Northeastern liberal Republican who... Is Trump? I mean, I don't even have to fill in the blanks of why right. they, you know people who take their spirituality seriously would not be fans of Trump. And when I talked to my family, nine out of ten members said I have to vote for him. The Supreme Court. Yeah, and the and, Supreme Court would still have been an issue, of course, sure, for the next but, four years. But there's nothing like having a open exactly a vacancy to make it real. So, and then he shepherded the Gorsuch thing through, uh, uh, triggered the nuclear option, pulled it off, and again. There were uh, institutionalists and kind of old bulls like McCain and Lamar Alexander who didn't really didn't want to do that. They hate the idea of tampering with the traditions of the Senate, even if the traditions are kind of recent and maybe should be tampered with. He was able to hold them all in line, not to get suckered in by Schumer to some fake deal that wouldn't have been any good. So I, yeah, I very much agree with McConnell. It is ironic. All the Trump people who have contempt for McConnell, establishment Republican, never accomplished anything. <laughs> He's the reason, arguably, Trump became president mm -hmm. by holding that seat open, and the reason that for Trump's biggest, I would almost right. say, only significant domestic policy victory so far. Uh, well, you got to give Chuck Schumer some credit because Schumer Chuck Schumer weak. has now created uh, one of Trump's upcoming wins, yeah. which is going to be putting prior on the U.S. Supreme Court with 51 votes. Now, I don't think it's going to be caution, prior, but the only thing I would caution about that is people are being a little too quick to jump to the conclusion that that he it's not. 100% certain you can hold all 52 Republicans just for any Republican. Right, exactly, yeah. I can see, you know, one of the Amy Klobuchar, the Democratic senator from Minnesota, going to Susan Collins, not to pick on her, but why not? And, <laughs> you know, Susan, that was fine with Gorsuch, right. that was Scalia's seat, but if it's a Democratic right. seat, this Roe v. Wade will be in danger. Do you want to go down in history as the right. senator who made that possible? Mm -hmm. I, I'm a little, I think Paul was a little overconfident. Having sure. said that, having said that, it was better to break the filibuster on this right. than on the next one. Oh, no. And I, so, I, I use prior to be provocative. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be prior. But even if, say, a Hardiman. Yes. I mean, Hardiman would have been a, solid, a prob could get a solid conservative on now, I Yeah, think. sure. But and, and, and you don't have to worry about the fight that you just mentioned, which would have come. You, yeah. you could have upheld, there would have been a real danger to push for a true squish yeah. uh, suitor. I, I can't even say that name without getting right, right. upset. 
and using the filibuster as a tool, like you said, to pull those few Republicans yeah, no, I think, over, I think now you that's just over. You're going to get a normal conservative. Probably, and probably hold all the Republicans on that vote. Mm-hmm. So that's good news. The foreign po- it was but a, Chuck it, Schumer did that. I want to. This is my point. Chuck Schumer yeah. did that. He made the decision. I'm not going to lead. I'm going to ride this progressive wave. I don't want to get in front of them for whatever. I don't know what his calculation so let's, is. So let's make he, the pro Schumer. So this. let's make the pro Schumer. The, the pro Schumer argument is: at the end of the day, they weren't going to be able to stop the next one anyway, unless they could actually get it below mm-hmm. 50. In other words, to move Collins and some of those offs actually right. voting for the person, and. There are some special elections coming up. It's, it would be a big blow to the Republicans if they were to lose. It would be a huge upset if they were to lose Pompeo's seat in Kansas, seat in Kansas next week. But in Georgia, Price's there's a more Georgia. serious yeah. chance maybe of a Democrat. And he may have just felt, you know what, I, I'll take that short-term energy for the, in the party. We'll cross the Supreme Court bridge later anyway, and it probably wouldn't mm-hmm. have been able to sustain the filibuster. I guess that's what he's thinking to the degree he's not being stampeded by the by the activists. It will be interesting to me just politically what happens in right. these special elections. Well, I, me too. I used to live in uh, Representative Price's district, and the idea that the Democrat is close to he's up in the forties. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't find forty Democrats, you right. know, and so now he's in the forties. Part of it is they screwed up. It's one of the it's what they call it a jungle primary right. where everyone runs on the same time. So the Republicans are dispersed. And, and, and not yeah. only that, they have some really bad Republicans. The the mainstream establishment. Republican is a terrible candidate, as evidenced by the fact that she keeps losing other races. And then there's a Trump wannabe who's out there, you know, whipping up part that's it's probably gonna go down as a scare because the 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 young man who's running, the really young guy running as a Democrat, is probably not gonna be able to put fifty percent together in a eighteen person field, and then it'll be one on one, and so he'll probably win. Right. But um but back to one last thing on the Supreme Court stuff. So right now. Who is your Bill Crystal's favorite Supreme Court justice? Huh. Not not setting Gorsuch aside. You know, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the eight that were there. If you had to pick one, say, give me nine of these. That's my choice. I mean, I love two of them. Honestly, I really respect and personally like and admire two of them the most. I would say Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito. Very different people, obviously. How are they different? Um, well, as individuals, I would say just kind of different life experiences. But Thomas is just such an amazing. A person and a really courageous jurist who really gets back goes back to first principles, not scared to dissent. Alito, though, in his understated way, less sort of dramatic figure than Thomas, not that Thomas wanted to be, but because of the hearing, I guess, became that. Um, Alito is really remarkable. I think, you know, 10 years, if he can stay on 15 more years and write opinions, he could go down as really a great judge I and mean, a great justice in terms of his legal thinking. So they're both great. And if we could, if, if Gorsuch could follow in their footsteps and we get a couple more, that would be, that would be remarkable. Because that was what, what I'm asking you to conclude here. So the year 2020 comes around, you've got three or four years of Gorsuch on the court. Who do you think is going to be? Do you think who Gorsuch? Will he be more like? No, no. Who do you he'll think be more will be like your John Roberts? No, Gorsuch will be more like John Roberts. I think. That's I'm not just either the names that, you just said. I'm just saying that to depress you. We'll have Thomas and Alito as the <laughs> sort of strong bulwarks of conservatism. Gorsuch will be, and like Roberts, will be 995 percent mm-hmm. conservative and constitutionalist. But they'll be a little more trying not, you know, rough, sanding off the rough edges and and uh, getting along. But honestly, a lot of the issues that are going to come up are not going to be the dramatic issues. Same-sex marriage is done. I don't think Roe v. Wade's going to get overturned. We're talking about some administrative law issues where Gorsuch actually is strong. It's not 
stuff that the public really sees right. that much. But in terms of discretion to administrative agencies, I think Gorsuch could be a leader in curbing that, which would be good for curbing the administrate, mm-hmm. administrative state. And, and, and just and to explain very quickly, it's things like Congress passes a law about clean water. Yeah. EPA decides navigable waterways are your kid's inflatable tub right. in the backyard. And, and the previous doctrine has been to deference to the agencies, exactly. which incidentally was a doctrine that a lot of conservatives pushed because they didn't want an overreaching judiciary. But the result of that, and Scalia was rethinking that before he died, actually, was that you had an overreaching administrative state. I think Gorsuch is much more interested in having the courts be a check on the administrative state, which would be a good thing. And I think on religious liberty, which is likely to be one of the big, biggest issues of the next several years, Gorsuch will be quite conservative. So I think he'll be more like Robertson Manor, but I think people will be happy with his performance. Okay. I'm just relieved that you didn't say Ruth Bader Ginsburg was your favorite justice. So I'm oh, fine. that's good. That was easy. That was easy. We can we can agree on that here at the Weekly Standard. The Quite. notorious RBG. Absolutely. You need a cool rap nickname, too. We should work on that. Bill Crystal, thanks so much for joining us for the Crystal Clear edition of The Daily Standard. Thanks, Michael. You've been listening to The Daily Standard podcast. You can find these podcasts at weeklystandard.com slash podcast, or better still, subscribe on iTunes or on Google Play. Just search Weekly Standard. The podcast will show right up. Click. You'll never miss another episode. And do us a huge favor. Whether you're a fan of Bill Crystal, Fred Barnes, Steve Hayes, the rest of the writers here, the more you let people know about the podcast with reviews on iTunes and five-star ratings, the more people can find this great content. And thanks to SaneBox.com for sponsoring this podcast, and of course, to you for listening. I'm your host, Michael Graham.